Dr. Richard Ingersoll is a leading expert on America's elementary and secondary teaching force. His research examines teaching as a job, teachers as employees, and schools as workplaces. After teaching in both public and private schools for a number of years, Dr. Ingersoll obtained a Ph.D. in sociology from the University of Pennsylvania in 1992. From 1995 to 2000, he was a faculty member in the sociology department at the University of Georgia. In 2000, he came to the Graduate School of Education at the University of Pennsylvania, and in 2012, he was appointed Board of Overseers Professor of Education and Sociology. He's published more than 100 articles, reports, chapters, and essays on topics such as teacher turnover, migration, and attrition, math and science teacher shortages, teacher education and the problem of underqualified teachers, induction and mentoring for beginning teachers, school accountability, teacher leadership and empowerment in schools, changes in the demographic nature of the teaching force, uh, the status of teaching as a profession, and shortages of teachers from underrepresented racial ethnic groups. Without further introduction, I give you Dr. Richard Ingersoll. Awesome. So you're Zooming from your house. Are you in the city or outside of the city? I live out in Wayne, outside the city. Okay. Wayne. And how long have you been at UPenn? I've been at UPenn since 2000. So that's 22 and a half years. <clears throat> and obviously you were somewhere in higher ed before UPenn. At what point were you, if I read your bio correctly, at what point were you actually in schools? Were you in K through 12 schools? Yes, I taught in uh, I taught in high school for a number of years, first in Western Canada. Mm. And then I moved back to this area where I grew up and I taught in both public and private schools for a few years. And then finally, I was so frustrated and fed up, I threw in the towel and I thought I wanted to teach bigger Older kids were better behaved. And so I went and got a PhD at Penn, actually, and became a professor. And yes, I teach older kids who are better behaved. <laughs> so you're paid more, which I'm happy to have, but it seems a little unfair. That's interesting. Where did you grow up? Did you grow up near Wayne or? Not well. I grew up in uh, north of Wilmington in Delaware. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Where'd you go to high school? I went to Greenville High School. It's right down the street from where uh, President Biden lives. Okay. I have a few friends um, that are connected to Silesianum High School. That's Yeah. Yeah. Which we used to call Sally's, I think. But they, they still do. Yeah. Back in the day. And <clears throat> yeah, I went to a public high school. Yeah. Awesome. Do you remember when you were first interested in education? Do you, was it a foregone conclusion that you were going to become a teacher do you remember getting interested in education because it seems like your career is this increasing interest in different angles of education i wonder where that started i no i didn't come till teaching until later i'd gotten a bachelor's degree i did a bunch of things for a number of years particularly in the pacific northwest i, I got i went to college at university of california and then People just kept saying, well, you're good at explain, explaining things and you should become a teacher. So I went and did what was called a fifth year program. You went and got a teaching certificate and then became a high school teacher and first taught in Western Canada in the mountains and then moved back east, as I mentioned. And I taught public and private schools for a number of years. 
was there a moment when you were in Canada when you sort of got hooked or were you determined to make a career out of that before that? No, no, I, uh, I just did it and I liked it in Canada. And one of the things I learned when I moved back to the States was that just as a job, putting aside the students for a minute, as a job, teaching is far better as a job in Canada than here mm. in the U.S. On, on any dimension I could name, whether it's respect, the resources, the pay, all those things. And this was, this was very puzzling to me. Like, am I just in not very good schools? What's going on here? This is just not nearly as good a job as it was when I was in Canada. Mm. And you... You know, as a teacher, you're quite isolated. I mean, you don't even know what's going on in the rest of the building, much less in other schools. And so I was, I wondered, what's, what's this job of being a teacher like elsewhere in other schools and across the U.S.? You know, I, I couldn't generalize past my own experience. So eventually, when I got a Ph.D., this is exactly what I've been stating ever since. What's the, you know, what's the teaching job like? How does it vary? What are the sources of the so many problems mm. plague elementary, secondary teaching in this country? When you were in Canada and you were first observing, um, or I, I suppose you, you had to come back first to start to observe the difference. But when you looked back at your experience in Canada, do you remember starting to have any inklings or any hypotheses of what was the biggest difference between your experience teaching in Canada and, and teaching in the States? Well, like I said, I came back when I moved back east and I grew up in this area. I, I really had a comeuppance. The job was very different. So, first of all, the pay. I was paid for <laughs> Canada, but that actually wasn't the main difference. It was issue of voice, having some say, having mm. some discretion on how you taught and what you taught. And in Canada, you seem to be treated more, a little more like a professional, you know, an expert who is on the ground with the kids and has some voice, you know, some input into stuff. Whereas in the schools, both public and private, in which I taught here in the States, teachers, teachers had no say. Teachers are told what to do, often blamed for, you know, bad outcomes, but had little input you were really very much treated as a lower level, low respected, low paid worker. That mm. was my experience. And it was kind of shocking. And every year there'd be a new reform which would come down the pike from, you know, the state capital or from the federal level. And, you know, sometimes these were really good ideas, but it was pretty obvious no one had ever asked the teachers. And a lot of these reforms really didn't have never worked very well you know they're 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 done to teachers they're not done with teachers hmm. it was very striking to me i mean would you reform medicine without discussing it with doctors and with the medical profession and if you if you didn't discuss it with them the reform might not work very well interesting and that's the story of educational reform in the U.S., I mean, good idea, often good ideas, sometimes not good ideas that often don't work very well. I'm starting to glean a little bit of a through line here, but um, I, I don't want to speak for you. So I'll keep asking what. 
where do you think the source of that difference in voice between your experience in Canada and your experience teaching in the U.S., where do you think that difference in voice stems from? Is that a, a top-down great... thing? Is that a bottom-up thing? Where, where does that come from? Well, that's a great question, and I've been trying to answer that. So structurally, schools are very top-down. The educational system writ large isn't necessarily uh for instance, we're unusual in that we have these 13,000-some school districts in the U.S., and yes, there's a Department of Education in Washington, but you know a lot of the decisions in school systems are local. They're local to school systems. We have these school districts and these school boards. System-wide, we're kind of decentralized, but at the school level, schools are highly centralized. They're, they're top-down, and I spent a lot of time, to under, time trying to understand why and how did that develop? And a lot of it is historical, that when the public school system was founded and the idea was successfully implemented to have universal tax-paid schooling for everybody. Before then, schooling had been quite hit and miss. Who got it? <clears throat> got. And the public school system was brought in and it very explicitly borrowed from industry how to, how to do this. We're going to have large-scale education. We're going to do this big, and we want to do it efficiently, particularly because it's going to be paid for by the tax, the, the, the public, taxpayers. And so explicitly, the model borrowed was from this genius, Henry Ford, who had figured out through the assembly line how to make a fairly well-made car quicker, more efficiently, and at a lower price. Ford's model of sort of doing large-scale stuff, he was considered a genius, and that was borrowed. And quite explicitly, schools were sort of built on this assembly line model that each year the kids would be passed on, and you'd have these, uh, you know, these long hallways with all these classrooms. It was sort of like taking the one-room schoolhouse and, and making it larger. Hmm. We developed this very and 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 to make it less expensive, it was explicitly quickly turned into women's work. And the argument was that we can save the taxpayer. We can pay women less than men. They don't have other options. And so we can actually do this cheaply and efficiently. We're going to use these brilliant ideas from Henry Ford and from industry. And we're going to get this you know, relatively low paid, but equal quality uh, employee teachers of women to be teachers. And, you know, we don't want them to have much say in voice. We want to, these are our kids. We want to control. We can want to control what they teach and how they teach. And so this model, this top-down model was developed from the beginning. And we're sort of stuck with it to this day. It's a relatively low respect, low pay line of work. It's a very large occupation, over 4 million teachers. It's a large one. We've never figured out how to replace the teacher with technology or whatever. You know, there's a lot of people working on that, but still it seems like you got to have that person in front of the kids. And so historically we developed this model and it's not highly respected my university, an elite university, University of Pennsylvania, there's not even an undergraduate major in education. The students that go to Penn don't want to become teachers. They want to become doctors and lawyers and business people and dentists and accountants and engineers, et cetera. So, you know, we do it differently than a lot of other nations. 
And we've sort of been stuck with that. And so, you know, teaching is very frustrating to sort of the best and brightest, quote unquote, you know, to ambitious, smart students who want to go into it, who quickly get frustrated. That's not a new finding. And they'll say, well, this isn't working well. Can we, can we, can we change this? Can we figure this out? And they might be told explicitly, listen, you know, shut up, do what you're, I was actually told that I had schools where they basically told to shut up, you know, mm. do what you're told. And I was kind of shocked. It seems so mindless. Yeah. Wow. That's encouraging. <laughs> um, I, I have a bunch of contextualizing questions, if you don't mind. Um, obviously, there's a huge thrust of what you're saying that I, I want to continue to talk about, but there's little pieces I want to go back and maybe just contextualize a little bit. When you say we, the royal we, we decided to do this industry um, model, the assembly line model, the women's work, cheap labor, when all those decisions, are there records of who was actually having those conversations? I mean, who were who was making those decisions and were they that explicit? Like we are going to borrow from this industry model. Yes, there's wonderful history out there on how the school system got formed. And as a doctoral student, I read a lot of this. It was very illuminating. I had no idea. Mm. And it was progressives. Before the public school system, schooling was really a localized affair. It was really hit and miss. There was no consistency. There was no standards. Who, who taught what they taught? And it wasn't working very well when we went into the Industrial Revolution and when urbanization happened and there was a lot of immigration, there was a general consensus. Our school non-system really isn't working. It's not serving us. Let's invent something. And so progressives, uh, who also were those who were against uh, you know, child labor and urban corruption and all these other things, also wanted to make a much better school system. And they had very good intentions. And in many ways, what they created was much better than what had gone before. This sort of ad hoc village, town, localized uh, schooling where, you know, it might have been done by the town. It might have been done by a, a company, excuse me, a church or whatever. I mean, some states had developed public education of sorts. But so this new system came in. And they really believed it was the one best system, which is, in fact, the title of a famous history by an his educational historian on how it was set up. And they had very good intentions. And they wanted to bring in standards. We're not going to just allow anyone to teach. We're going to have licenses. And let's, let's figure out what we want the student. Let's, let's have tests to see whether the students are learning stuff. They brought in all this kind of stuff testing and licenses and certification and textbooks, you know, standards. In other words, so it's not just ad hoc. And this system was developed. Unfortunately, it's kind of unflexible. Unfortunately, it's quite top down. And it doesn't really give any voice to those sort of doing the work on the on the ground level. Hmm. And it's it's not easily reformed. So that's kind of what we're stuck with. And, you know, other nations did it very differently than us with, 
with lots of implications. Interesting. Sorry, if you don't mind, I'm jotting a few notes down. Sure. So, so this impulse to look towards industry, that was primarily to solve the scale problem, correct? Correct. We're, we want to do something really large, and we want to do it efficiently. And mm -hmm. it's tax paid. We have to keep the costs down. Because, you know, they were trying to sell this model. It had to be approved. Mm. And uh, so they, you know, they looked to industry. They looked to women as being the, the source of the, the labor, the teaching labor force. Mm. And that's, that's how it came about. Interesting. So there's there's this really interesting theme emerging that this that efficiency is really attractive, but the attractive nature of efficiency has sort of damned us into certain not not only structural constraints but sort of um, social and cultural attitudes that are also constraining. Yes. I mean, it was just decided that the most efficient was a very top-down model. Mm. You know, go in other directions. And of course, we constantly have these reforms that want to go back to decentralization. That's what charter schools are all about. You know, let's, let's deregulate. Let's have this one chunk of tax-paid schools, charter schools, that are, have less bureaucracy, less regulation. They can sort of more experiment. They can be the window of innovation. And in many ways, that's kind of hearkening back to the pre-public school system, you know, over a century ago. It's it's attempt to kind of do that. And of course, this whole, this is a huge controversial debate. I mean, mm. schools have their supporters and their opponents, and there's nothing new. It's these competing models. And that's been going on since the public school system was founded. I mean, there was lots of opposition to it. Interesting. More on the charter school topic in a, in a minute, perhaps, but what do you think is the primary reason this current system is so difficult to reform? Do you think it's, as I alluded to, because of structural reasons, or is it more, um, is it more the, the cultural reasons that you were starting to allude to with the foundation of it being cheap work, that kind of thing? Well, I think it's both. In our culture, Teaching's not a highly respected line of work. I mean, there is a sense is, you know, you're at a party and someone says, oh, you're a teacher. You must be a saint to do that. Okay, there's right, that. Right. But on the other hand, oh, you're a teacher. Gosh, you seem smart. Why are you doing that sort of thing? <laughs> and this is a very American ambivalence. You know, there's other places like Singapore and Finland and Switzerland where teaching is really a highly prestigious line of work that you have to be the best and the brightest, quote unquote, to get into it. Hmm. And uh, we did. So we have this cultural thing. And, you know, I'm a professor. I mean, professors generally look down upon elementary, secondary teaching. They're teachers. They're, they're below us. That's lower education. They're not as smart. They're not as trained. And the reality is, having done both, that, and this is not to denigrate being a professor, but being a good high school teacher is far, far more difficult than being a good professor. You know, it's just, that's my experience. And mm. it's not hard to be a not very good high school teacher. It's very, very hard to be a really good high school teacher. That takes 
a lot of skill, a lot of experience, a lot of effort. And I don't think those things are generally appreciated. There's some sense that, ah, you don't have to be that smart. It's not that hard to do. You run into that all the time. And that's a cultural viewpoint. Hmm. It, it strikes. Sorry. Pardon excuse me. me. You could go. No, you're, you're right. Well, and of course, given that cultural stereotype, it doesn't make it a particularly attractive, you know, career to get into. And I mean, notice we perennially have teacher shortages. We have problems getting people to sufficient numbers of people to come in and more importantly, to stay in teaching. Now, mm-hmm. notice, for instance, law, there's no shortage of lawyers. There's, there's a, you know, waiting list three miles long to get into law schools. I mean, think of that, you know, well-respected, well-paid lines of work with good working conditions. They don't suffer from shortages. So, you know, and of course, now with the pandemic, there's this huge fear out there that we're going to have a teacher shortage, that we're having it or going to have it because of the stresses and the tensions. There's this fear. We don't have the data yet, but there's this fear that uh, there's just going to be a real exodus of people out of teaching and there's going to be, you know, a a decrease in those signing up to do teacher preparation programs and enter teaching. How much of the teacher shortage in your professional opinion and your, your research opinion is, um, is strictly a question of incentives. If we were to increase teacher pay, do you think you would still have that? And have you seen, I would imagine some charter schools have experimented with different incentive structures. Has that resulted in a lack of um, that shortage, if that isn't? Well, when you say incentives, are you talking about financial incentives? Primarily, but I'd be curious to know what other incentives you entertain. Well, certainly pay is important. And we have a lot of data showing that those that go into teaching, pay is not the top of their list as to, you know, the the motives behind their career choice. Mm. However, once these people get in there and they get mortgages and they get debt and they get children, pay becomes a big factor. So pay is important. And also in this country, pay is is correlated with respect in a sense. So pay is a big factor there, but there's all kinds of other stuff. I mean, the low pay was not the main reason I left uh, high school teaching. It was it was the 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 lack of respect it was the lack of voice and decision making it was the, the student discipline issues hmm. i mean you'd spend i mean half my energy half my time was just dealing with bad behavior on the part of teenagers sure that was huge and your hands were really tied you know so, someone could totally ruin a fifth you know your fifth period math class or something you couldn't no, you couldn't throw them out of the class no no you waited to the end of the day, you'd write up a thing to the vice principal who then would decide if an infraction happened. Yeah. You know, I mean, as a college professor, if some student is acting out in class, I just, I have the autonomy to say, please leave now. High school teachers don't have that. That's called, Mm. that's called power. That's called authority. That's called voice. And there's, that's a huge difference between being a professor and being a high school teacher, as a professor, you have a lot more authority. You're a professional. So I forget if that answers your question. I might have addressed a bit. No, no, no. I appreciate it. Um, 
even if you did answer the question, I don't I don't know if if any answer will fully satiate my curiosity on this topic. But you mentioned when I asked if the teacher shortage is primarily a result of um, incentives or, or lack of pay, you sort of said, well, when you ask people who go into teaching. You know, they don't really cite that as the primary reason, but I wonder if that really gets at it because you have this selection by it. Those are the people who are willing to go into teaching with the pay such as it is, where if you ask a bunch of lawyers and doctors, or, you know, et cetera, and high paid positions, like what percent of your career decision is because of pay? My guess is that it would be a significant figure. Now we can debate what a significant figure is, but I do think that that motivates people. So I think when, when you sort of take this stab at like, oh, well, why are people joining teaching? I think the real question is like, why are people not, right? Um, I'd yes. be really interested in I'd be really interested in asking a bunch of lawyers, like, what would it take? <laughs> or or you, you get people in corporate positions who are always like, I, I've heard this many times, I want my second career to be teaching. And it's like, okay, so there's an interest there. What would you need? How much money would you need in order for it to be your first profession? That's a great question. You're absolutely right, because there is this self-selection. Those who go into it, pay is not the top of their list because you know, they, it's, you know, they're, they're well aware of what the pay is going to be. So, yes. And so if the pay was increased, it certainly could bring in a wider pool. Mm. However, you could still have this frustration with the conditions in schools and the issue like voice. You know, if, if you're a partner in a law firm, you, you own the firm. I mean, the partners own it. They make the decisions. They're accountable if the firm goes under. In schools, teachers don't have that, that degree of authority and ownership that you'd have in you know, these partnerships of lawyers or accountants or engineers or whatever, so, or doctors' clinics. So you know, it's not a professional model. Though at the same time, doctor, to interrupt, I'm sorry, at the same time, en route to those partnerships in those other professions, there is a um, almost almost mythic lack of voice where you sort of hear about the, you know, not the lawyers being hazed necessarily, but the sort of lawyers getting piled on the work and the late hours. And they sort of have a, you know, lack of voice en route to that partnership. There is that <laughs> that golden well, ticket out. Well, but. You're, you're absolutely right. There's a hierarchy there. Mm -hmm. And yes. So although, you know, in their particular cases, they're, they're assigned to, they may well have a lot of discretion in that. It just depends. Maybe there's a team of lawyers there and the new lawyers are, are part of a team with some senior lawyers who make the decisions. And that probably changes over time as they get experience. You're absolutely right. In my own experience, I mean, being a professor, the whole voice issue, it's like night to day going from being a high school teacher to a professor. Hmm. A professor, you know, I decide what I want to teach for the most part, the content of the courses, the evaluation of the students, the faculty collectively decides on hiring and all kinds of issues that, yes, there's a dean, there's a CEO, so to speak. Of the, of the college, or and there's a chair of the department, but the faculty has a lot of collective decision-making that really, you know, they're the last word on all kinds of issues. Uh, now, there can be fights with deans or chairs or even the president, but 
you know, so it's a very different model, what I've experienced between being a professor in terms of this issue of voice input into decision making, being a professor versus being a elementary, secondary school teacher. Hmm. That's one of those issues that back to your question of what would be the incentives. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, along with pay, along with support. You know, traditionally refer to teaching as kind of this sink or swim trial by fire of work. I mean, in my case, you get the job. The principal gives you a key to your classroom, gives you a pat in the back. That's it. You're on your own. You're on your own. I mean, I never even saw the principal. And, Mm. you know, you're busy the whole day. You might not even see any other faculty. And then World War III breaks out in one of your afternoon classes. And so you seek out some veteran teacher in the building and say, listen, could you give me some advice? You know, I'd like to avoid World War IV happening tomorrow. What could I do kind of thing? So very much on your own, very little support, but also not a whole lot of discretion and power. Interesting. How much of this voice question do you think is um, the result of I, this was a bit a few years now. I think I'm stealing this number from a few years back, but I think there was a point when I was becoming a teacher that I heard that the teaching profession is something like the bottom 35 percent of performing graduate like college graduates. I don't know if that that number has since changed. Um, how much of the lack of voices is a result of that? Where if you were recruiting from the top 80% and you were like, you know what, <laughs> you know what, Susie, that's a really good idea. We should run with that where, you know, you know, not to disparage current teachers, but if, if there's that perception and it's backed by that number, then maybe you don't necessarily want to pr- promote that much autonomy. That's a great question. So yes, it's true. We have data from different sources over several decades showing that that as far as academic achievement goes, teaching is on the low end. You know, the the SAT scores, for instance, of those who go into education in college versus, you know, major and other things, there's real differences there. Mm. All right. So, you know, now that's you can't assume that academic achievement makes you a better or worse teacher, but it's not an encouraging sign when your most able college students don't go into teaching and your less academically able college students do go into teaching. Okay, so there's that point, yes. But you're also raising a great point about, well, you know, you give people voice, what if they're not very high quality, high caliber employees? Sure. There's certainly people who are not very good teachers. And in fact, we probably have people who aren't very good teachers that we shouldn't have. We'd like to encourage them to leave, find some other line of work. So really what you need is a balance. And this is really management 101. You know, you don't give employees control over things and not hold them accountable. On the other hand, you don't hold employees accountable for things they have no discretion, no control, no say into. Hmm. You need a balance. And so, and that's ostensibly what professions have. 
The professionals are given the training, the pay, the rewards, the time, the tools, the autonomy. And then ostensibly, they're held accountable to do good work. Now, that doesn't always, that's the ideal of professions. Okay. So what you'd need is both. You would need to really change teaching. You would need to have these improved pay, you mentioned, and voice support, but also improved accountability. You need both. Unfortunately, educational reform, like so much in this country now, is so polarized, you'll kind of get one side or the other. Let's give teachers more say. That's one side. The other side is, well, let's, let's have more accountability. Let's test teachers. Let's fire bad teachers. Let's, let's fire our way to Finland, so to speak. You know, Finland, the students score high. Well, you know, the model would be, let's have both. Let's have both. Let's have a balance. And like I say, that's kind of management 101. I mean, the good firm has a balance mm. of both. And, you know, in a law firm, you're not going to give a lot of autonomy to new hires. They need to prove themselves. And that makes sense. And yeah. teaching doesn't have that. And we've sort of had this one-sided accountability come in and, you know, it's sort of imposed from the top down. And yes. <clears throat> Interesting. What um, if Finland is the goal en route to Finland? What um, what do you think is a high is higher leverage? Um, do you think? I mean, you said sort of management one on one a few times. Do you think it's a manager or do you think it's a system? Do you think we should be we people interested in education reform should be thinking about systems and incentive structures and um, um systems of reporting and sort of like structural hierarchies, or do you think we should be thinking about management training? Well, we need both. Sure. <laughs> so the preparation of school leaders, that's often criticized, as is the preparation of school teachers. Mm. So we need to improve that. And we need to improve the quality of people going into those lines of work. At the same time, we'd need structural change. We need to change the way schools are set up and organized. So we need both. It's mm. kind of a chicken or an egg situation. And it's hard to do one without the other. And I mean, you can go recruit top people. This is what Teach for America does. But you know, the vast majority of Teach for America folks, they stop after their two-year commitment. You know, these are you know, the model is let's get these best and brightest in college and recruit them into these tough schools. And, you know, they do two years and it's like the Peace Corps or something like that. I think that was the part of the original vision. And, you know, but most don't stick around. I mean, one of the biggest sources of applicants for our graduate programs in the College of Education are former Teach for America folks often are very critical and very frustrated by their experiences and want to understand more. So you need to do both. I mean, it's, it's not going to just work to, you know, bring in your top college students into the same old system because mm. a lot of them won't stick. It's going to be, I mean, that's a great thing to do, but it won't necessarily change that structure. It, it's sort of need to do both. I that's my thinking. Interesting. I've gleaned looking at your website and, and some of your research, your interest in teacher training. And I'm 
you sort of mentioned, you know, bringing people into the same system. And, and you also alluded to this sort of grassroots mentorship that a lot of teachers sort of seek out, like, hey, there was World War III in my classroom. Like, how do you handle this? Um, how much of your interest in teacher training is 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 concerned with not teaching, tr not training teachers to survive the same system and to just kind of make do and, and you know, keep going along with the same system? And how much of it is actually training teachers to change the thing they're entering? Does that make sense? It seems like this really yeah. difficult catch-22 where if you train me to change the system, I come in and my initial orientation is going to be to try to figure out the current system, right? Yes, you want to survive. Right. <laughs> if I'm not going to get paid well and I'm not going to be respected, I want to at least endure, right? <laughs> yes. And you want to make a difference. Right. And if oftentimes I feel, I feel that the, for lack of a better word, anyone who's poised to disrupt that system is not well received by that system. <laughs> well, absolutely. I mean, there's nothing new about the finding that sometimes your best teachers, your most innovative teachers, your most hardworking teachers are the ones often at odds with school administration, and school leadership. Mm. So there's a clash there. So that tells you something. But, well, teacher preparation varies dramatically in this country. Some programs quite explicitly say we want to we make change agents. Others, it's maybe same old, same old. The quality varies dramatically. We're very unusual in that we have a very large number of teacher education, teacher preparation programs, departments, colleges, what have you. We have more of those than China does, who has far more students. It goes back historically, when we founded the public school system, we needed to upscale, we needed to have a lot of teachers. And so we have this large number of these teacher education programs at colleges or universities across the whole country. And the quality varies dramatically. Um, from very good to very poor. But again, even if you're very good, very good for what? What's that job going to be like? I was lucky. I actually did my teacher education in Canada at, at a place called Simon Fraser University in Vancouver on the west coast of Canada. It was a terrific program. Hmm. Half the year was in classrooms, what's called student teaching, practice teaching. And they would recruit these award-winning teachers from schools to be our teachers. You know, mm -hmm. so you were being taught by people who are really, really good at it. You know, it wasn't a professor that had, you know, never been in an elementary secondary school or maybe had taught in one 30 years ago. And I'm not meaning to denigrate professors. Sure. But you really were taught the many, many skills, how to, how to facilitate facilitate a good classroom discussion. What are the criteria by which you should evaluate students? Is it effort? Is it, is it how well they did on a paper? How do you handle the students who are much lower ability than other students? How do you, do you teach to the middle? What if you have a wide range of ability in your classroom? How do you deal with irate parents who come in and accuse you of harming their students? How do you deal with students who don't speak English as a first language? I mean, there's so many different puzzles and challenges and issues. 
And I was in a program where they really walked you through that. Hmm. So I became, I, my experience was that teacher education could be really well done. It was. Hmm. On the other hand, it's often not. And certainly there's a camp out there we'd like to see us do away, do away with it. I mean, I have colleagues who say, listen, all you need is a degree in the subject, in English, in math, in biology, and then you can go in and teach that. This is an extremely naive view. You could have a PhD in mathematics and not have a clue how to get it algebra across to ninth graders. So, you know, that's sort of an academic naive viewpoint. But, but part of that is, is that often teacher education, teacher preparation isn't done very well. It varies a lot. And we have a lot of experimentation going on. It's actually kind of a healthy situation, I think, now. Hmm. Uh, who do you think are the primary experimenters? Is that the dichotomy between the public school system and the charter school system that you alluded to earlier? Who, who, or is it happening on a university level? Well, you mean in teacher, in terms of teacher education, teacher preparation? Yeah, or maybe even just more generally, the you know experimentation and reform more generally. Well, there's all kinds of different models and thoughts as to how to build the good teacher. And to me, that's good. That's good. There's all kinds of innovation and experimentation going on. You know, there's there's competition to the traditional university-based teacher preparation programs. I'm associated with one of those. But, you know, I mean, Teach for America had a different model. They started out with a six-week training course before you went in the classroom. They've since broadened that out. It's now a whole semester of preparation. And there's different models out there. There's a really innovative, interesting model at Arizona State University where they just redoing teacher preparation and they're doing it in conjunction. This gets back to an earlier issue you raised with trying to prepare people for a different type of schools as workplaces, but also working with school districts to create those new workplaces. It's a very innovative model at Arizona State University in the, in the College of Education there. So you know, I mean, there's very promising school reforms out there. Mm. So, for instance, back to this issue of voice and teachers' input into decision making. There's a small but growing movement of teacher run schools. They actually explicitly model themselves after the partnerships we discussed earlier that are common in law, accounting, engineering, where, you know, the partners. They run things. They are the boss. And so there's this movement. Sometimes they're charter schools. Sometimes they're, they're uh, public district schools where there isn't, a, there isn't a principal who's the boss. No, they may hire someone to do administrative stuff, but the teachers actually make the decisions like professionals. And they're also held accountability. They're also held accountable. So, you know, there's models of reform out there. Uh, a whole nother genre of reform is support for beginning teachers. Earlier, I mentioned this problem of the sink or swim model. <laughs> you know, we generated these statistics. This is a couple decades ago that between 40 and 50% of those who go into teaching are gone within five years. Mm. And we've looked at more recent data. That still is true. Mm. And so there's this genre of reform to provide some support for beginning teachers to help them 
learn the ropes and survive and hopefully succeed. And, you know, one of the main things is to have a veteran teacher serve as a mentor to them. And we have strong data showing that when these support programs, they're often called induction programs, are well thought through, they work. They improve the retention of the beginning teachers, they improve their teaching quality, and they improve student achievement. So, you know, there's, there's very good reforms out there to improve this line of work and the workplaces and the preparation. That, that statistic, that's alarming, 40 to 50% leave within five years. Five years is an interesting number where that seems like you've achieved at least survival, right? So, so the question that sort of jumps to mind is, is it really a question of mentorship? Is like, no, I've, I've got it. I can hang in this system, but I don't like the system. <laughs> I want out of the matrix here. Well, yeah. So if you have a good mentor, the data tell us that you have, there's better retention of teachers. There's, there's not the 40 or 50% that are gone within five years. Uh, on the other hand, if you have no induction support mentoring at all, then there's very, very high quit rates. Okay. It's more like, it's more like 30% within one year quit. Mm. So, you know, these reforms can work, but I'm kind of forgetting what your question was. I, I'm, I'm interested in this, the five year mark. For yes. me, it doesn't seem like a question of survival anymore. It seems like a yes. question of actually enjoying the profession. Maybe they, they they have a mentor and it gets them to five years, but then they say, okay, cool. I can work with this. I, I know how to survive here, but I don't actually like what survival means here. Um, so how yes. much of it is like, all right, we can, we can pour a lot of energy and time into that genre of reform that you were alluding to, which is new teacher training and mentorship. But how much of it is like, okay, great. You get the really bright kid to align to the system, but then they're like, after five years, they say, okay, I could teach here, but I actually don't want to. Well, you're raising a great point. And I think your question is, why do they, why do they leave? after those five years or even before the five years? What are the, what are the reasons behind their departures? Right. The, the reason somebody would leave after one year, I would imagine would be very different than the person who leaves after five. Well, yes and no. Yes and no. Uh, it comes down to these same kinds of work. I mean, we have a lot of data on this. Teachers mm -hmm. are asked. We have national data, T teachers who departed their school Maybe they went to another school. Maybe they got out of teaching altogether. Uh, why did you leave? Where are you? What are you doing? Why did you leave? Are you in another school? Are you now in graduate school? You become a banker or a lawyer, whatever. They're asked. And, you know, salaries are a factor. They'll say, you know, the salaries and benefits were not adequate. That's one thing. But it's not the main thing. Hmm. Uh, a big one is this issue of input into decision-making Discretion in the classroom, the voice issue I mentioned, that comes, that's come up in these national data surveys for years and years. That's a huge, that's a huge issue. They'll say, this is a major reason why I left that school, went to another where I got out of teaching altogether. Hmm. Another one I mentioned this earlier is the support amongst beginning teachers, particularly 
in those first few years, they'll say there was a there wasn't support. I was on my own, you know. And you know, there's there's some perverse things that go on. A lot of times, the toughest students are given to the new hires. Yeah, which is. <laughs> I mean, ostensibly, you would want to get in a law firm, ostensibly, good management would be to assign the toughest cases to the more experienced lawyers. Sure. Uh, I had this happen to myself. I got a job at a at a public high school in central Delaware. And these students this is a senior high school. These students that had driven all the other teachers nuts were put on me. No one sure. told me we're giving you a can't win situation, Richard. But, you know, I quickly figured out, wow, you know. And uh, threats and all kinds of issues dealing with these students. So, and and having no support whatsoever. I mean, I had to figure it out on my own. I had to survive. So, so those are big reasons behind the turnover of teachers, whether they're beginners or whether they're veterans. There just seems to be this point that you, you know, after five or six years, you kind of make a decision. I'm going to stick it out or I'm not. Because after five or six years, the quit rates, they go down. They go down. People have decided, mm. I'm going to stick it out. So there's a lot of quitting in the first three years. And by the way, we need to acknowledge, not all these departures are bad. Not, right. not all teachers' turnover is bad. I mean, first of all, there's some people, we don't want them to be teachers. They're not very good. Okay, maybe they could get better. And then, of course, we all change jobs as part of life. I mean, it's not all bad, but 40 to 50% is a lot. That's a high quit rate. It's not cost free. Mm. And after those first few years, then it slows down. And then, of course, it picks up with retirement at the end of your career. That, that second reason that you cited for, for people leaving the profession, I believe the way you put it was in point, input in decisions in the classroom. Is there data on that category being broken out? Is that, do you get a sense that that's more with curriculum or is that more, as you alluded to, with discipline? What are, what are the primary factors within that subset? Okay, that's a great question. This is a personal interest of mine, the whole issue of voice and discretion. Mm. I published a whole book on this. What was the name of that book? It's called Who Controls Teachers' Work? I, I can't wait to call you after I read that. <laughs> yeah. Who controls teachers' work? I published this a decade ago or something. I've since done more recent data analyses on how much say the teachers have collectively school-wide decisions, how much discretion do teachers have in their own classroom? How does this vary across types of schools? Does it make any difference anyhow? You know, I mean, giving teachers some say might be a nice thing, but does it, does the building in which teachers have more say, is the student achievement any different? Yeah. Did a whole lot of research on this. And you're absolutely right that input and say have positive effects, but also it varies across different issues. And the really big one, and this is over different data analyses, different databases, the issue that seems to be the most significant when it comes to teacher, faculty, voice in it is the whole issue of what are the rules and policies surrounding student behavior, misbehavior, the school discipline issue. Mm. And, you know, which is obviously tied to, but very little different. It's different than how much say do the teachers have over textbook choice? Sure. 
the curriculum in their classroom. This is sort of how much say do they have into the norms and the, the sticks and carrots, the sanctions around behavior in the building. Is it a case where there's a zero tolerance policy decided in the state capital and teachers become sort of police persons enforcing these rules? Or do teachers actually decide, here's the things that we do and don't want to have going on in our building, and here's going to be you know, the, the responses, the punishments, et cetera, input into those things. That's the biggest one. So in our statistical analyses, buildings in which teachers have more say into those issues have significantly better teacher retention, have significantly better student achievement on the state test, tests. Mm. And this is after co- holding constant, controlling for the poverty level of the school, the size of the school, uh, whether it's private or public, uh, mm. etc. whether it's urban, rural, or suburban, holding that equal. Does the amount of say that teachers have in the building, the faculty have, does that have any correlation with outcomes like test scores. And it turns out there's strong correlations Mm. that buildings where the teachers have more input. By the way, there's also accountability. I mean, accountability is is the rule now with, you know, uh, student test scores, et cetera. Uh, Those buildings have, have better teacher retention, better student achievement. So we have strong data on this issue. I mean, I've just done a lot of this myself. It's a personal interest of mine, given my own background career as a high school teacher. That's fascinating. Those, um, you'll excuse me if this is a little presumptuous. Are you okay with time, by the way? Yeah, I'm okay. All right. Friday afternoon. <laughs> if um, you can't, can you hear that in the background? There's a radio playing somewhere sorry yeah i don't hear it here but okay i can edit that little clip out um just so long as you don't hear whoever's music that is the um okay that question of of teacher input all right let me get back on track here the school discipline issue does that does the increase in teacher input does that correlate with the increase and this is difficult to operationalize i'm not sure how you would define this but does that correlate with an increase in strictness? Is it always the case that the more teachers have say, the more strict the discipline policy is, or is that not necessarily the case? My my sense is that people's, that would be people's fear. If we let teachers run the school, it's going to become a police state. Yes. That's not necessarily the case at all. In Mm. fact, one of the criticisms of the zero tolerance policies, which came in, I think in the nineties, was that they took away any discretion. You know, the teachers couldn't sit down with the students and sort of figure out, okay, what's going on here and what's the appropriate response? Mm. Is it appropriate to have some punishment of some sort or is it not? Mm. It took away. It was if the student is caught with alcohol, X, Y, Z happens, period, no exceptions. So, uh, no, it's not necessarily the case that things would be more strict. Certainly that's a fear out there. And by the way, that's a legitimate fear. You know, these teachers are working with our kids. And after all, the whole issue of behavior and discipline, you know, this has to do with norms and values and family, you know, 
family culture and norms and values. And so, of course, parents don't necessarily agree. Some parents might say, well, I actually don't like that rule about the length of hair or the length of the girl's skirts or cursing or the hundred other things, cell phone use, the hundred other things that the school makes rules surrounding what's what the students can and cannot do. Parents might not agree with that. And they certainly may not want to give any carte blanche to the teachers. So this is a controversial issue. And the answer isn't necessarily that teachers become the dictators and run the show. The answer is that teachers have some input into those decisions. Hmm. Currently, you have a thing where teachers often have no say. When I was a teacher, there was rules in the building. I had no say in it at all. And again, I mentioned this earlier, I had no authority. If I had a student who completely was off the wall and ruined a class, you know, was disrupted, maybe picking fistfights or whatever, I actually did not have the authority. My principal let me know this explicitly to say, you need to leave this classroom right now so we can continue to the rest of the period. No, no, you don't. So, you know, so it's a nuanced thing that teachers, the data tell us, want and need to have some input into these issues. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to run the show or they're going to be dictators. And of course, the parents want some input too. I mean, look, we have this whole controversy over critical race theory and these parental pushbacks and whatnot, and this has become polarized. But you know, there's validity on both sides. The school wants some input into the curriculum. In this case, what are you going to teach about race, et cetera? And, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not casting judgment here one way. On the other hand, the parents actually have some legitimate right to have some say in that, you know, and neither side are bigots or something like that. I mean, this, this latest tension over those kinds of uh, issues in schools, there's nothing new about parental school tension over various issues, what's going to be taught. I mean, my God, this goes back to evolution and, you know, uh, all kinds of things. Because after all, we're not making automobiles here. We're taking people's children and we're trying to make them into adults. That's mm. sort of the point of schools. And so you're going to have very different views as to what's done and how's it done with the kids. And so you're going to have disagreements. And this comes to a head with student behavioral issues and decisions. What is going to be deemed good and bad behavior? And, you know, that's a tough one. Uh, and basically the data suggesting teachers should have some voice in those decisions. That's so interesting. Is it is it too far to say that one version of interpretation of what you're saying is that what's difficult about reform writ large in education is in part we can't agree on the bottom line where in business you have regulatory bodies and there's an ethical consideration, et cetera, et cetera, but those are placed on you. Your bottom line is to make money within those bounds. In education, we can't necessarily, because we're not making automobiles, as you said, 
we can't necessarily agree on that bottom line because it becomes cultural and philosophical. And, you know, what is, what is the point? <laughs> what do we want an 18 year old to look like and to act like and to think? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. fascinating. You've hit the nail on the head in industry. You know, the argument is the well-run firm or organization profit or nonprofit has, has a mission. Here's mm -hmm. what we want to do. Schools doesn't have that. We do not have consensus over the purposes of schools. Mm. We have different viewpoints and reform might go one, the pendulum swings one way or the other. And what yeah. we've done over the last century is we've asked schools to do more and more and more. Mm. Take on things that were once the responsibility of parents or communities or religions. Now we ask schools to do these things. And so we've, We've increased the number of things we ask schools to do. We still have a limited uh, part of the day, limited part of the year to do these things. We don't have consensus. I mean, in other words, is the purpose here to um, have the highest test scores on academic tests? Is the purpose to make good citizens? It's a, is the purpose to improve the self-esteem and the psychological well-being of, of the kids? Is the purpose to promote multicultural awareness? I mean, just think of the many, many worthwhile goals we have for schools. I, I listed four there. You know, there's two dozen. Some of them are contradictory. Is there time to do all of them? Mm. And some people would argue, well, schools are forced to do all of them and they do poorly. Mm. So think how different that is from an organization, profit or nonprofit, that has a mission and a set of goals. Schools are mm. asked to do a whole wide variety of things and we don't have consensus over either the ends or the means. Mm. The argument is, this is a setup. This is a bad situation. This is a conundrum. And how can you please all those different constituencies? Interesting. To, to your point about this direction or lack of direction in a mission um, or lack of, lack of an explicit mission, do you have any sense? I don't know if your research is brushed up against this or if you just have an instinct. Do you, do you have a sense that um, mission statements of schools matter? Well, they should. They could. They might be so. I mean, the way to get around this is you're so vague. Right. They're just schmaltzy. And yeah. it's actually incorporated in is, is 10 missions. Yeah. Okay? Or it's just a hollow slogan. You know, I think this is maybe an advantage that private schools might have is that private schools might say, we're not going to do everything for everybody. No, no, no. Here's what we're going to do. Mm. And if your child fits that, then they can apply and we'll mm. accept them. But we're not going to do this. In other words, we're going to do fewer things better. And that's that's maybe an advantage that some private schools have. Public schools aren't allowed to do that. I mean, everyone is entitled to a tax paid education. It's very, very hard to expel a student from public schools because that violates their basic rights. Mm. And that's good, it's good. But you know, what if, well, let's take the extreme case, a child who maybe doesn't deserve to be or shouldn't be in the school, maybe because they, you know, beat up some people or something like this. So, uh, I mean, you know, I'm trying to give an extreme example where, you know, in a private school, you can say goodbye. Sure. 
you, you don't have a right to be here. There's no entitlement. And if you behave like that, then we're going to expel you. And that's legal. The public school, it's a very different situation. Hmm. Very different situation. And so you have a wide range of missions and you also have a wide range of, oh, I don't want to say clientele. That's the wrong word. Students. And this makes for a very challenging role for leadership to manage such an organization. Hmm. Um, I'm aware of the time and I'm, and I'm really thankful for all the time you have given me so far. So maybe in an attempt to sign off with a question, you seem to have a deep interest in the experimentation with solutions or possible solutions. Do you have experiments that you really value right now domestically and internationally that you think we should be paying more attention to? Well, I mentioned the case of the teacher-run schools, a small- That's very interesting. And they're centered in the Midwest in Minnesota, but there's Pennsylvania even has several of them. So that's a very interesting reform. It's the most (laughs) professionalized model I've ever seen of a school and of teachers. And- you know, so I, I'd like to see that succeed. It has its challenges. Uh, there's also, I mentioned, there's a lot of experimentation around how to build the good teacher. And there's very smart people working on that. Another area where we have experimentation is the whole issue of evaluation and accountability. We've all been in schools. We all know that some teachers work far harder and are far better at it than others. Hmm. And so it stands to reason, gosh, let's have some rewards. Let's let's have promotions and salary increases, not just based on experience, years of experience of teaching or how many graduate level credits you got over the summer. Let's base part of it on your quality and your performance as a teacher. This makes total sense. Turns out it's not so easily done. Yeah. We have a century of failed attempts at merit pay for teachers, at pay for performance, at let's let's pay the better teachers more, Mm. pay the the not so good teachers less. Makes sense. It's very hard to do. It turns out this gets back to this lack of consensus over the ends of schools. We have a lack of consensus over what's the good teacher. So is it someone who gets their student test scores up? Is it someone who builds confidence in their students? Is it someone who teaches critical thinking? You know, we have a lot of different definitions of the good teacher. So then when it comes to evaluating, deciding who is the good teacher, who has merit in the merit pay system, it turns out it's not so easy. It's not so easy. Hmm. And, you know, I th- I've heard that it's also tricky in other lines of work. And I have a friend who's a lawyer It says when it comes to, you know, annual evaluations, which lawyers get which pay increase. He says, it's actually not so straight. Is it the number of cases you won, the number Mm -hmm. of clients you brought in? You know, teaching seems to be particularly tricky when it comes to evaluation of the caliber of the practitioners. I I think it's tricky with nurses. Okay, so what's the product that nurses produce? Patient care. All right. How do you decide which nurse is better? I'm sure there's variations in quality. And, and, I, and there's probably very smart people working on trying to come up with an objective, reasonable way of distinguishing. 
And there's very smart people out there in teaching, figuring out, trying to figure out an objective, reasonable way of the very great teachers and those of us in the middle and the really terrible. And so that's, to me, there's a lot of innovation there. And I, I think that's good. Hmm. Let's oh. practice nut. Yeah, I'm really interested in your proclivity to look outside of the profession for wisdom. If you were to create a, if you were to hand mold a reformer, an effective reformer, what would you recommend they go and study that's not education? Obviously, they need to study some education, but if you were to say, hey, there's wisdom in um, cross disciplines here or in other sectors, go go take a really close look at that sector. What would you recommend they study? A couple of things. First of all, steady educational systems in other nations that seem to be having success. Mm. Singapore, Korea, Finland, for instance, how do they do it? Turns out they do it very differently than us in Mm. many ways. Another thing is steady other lines of work. How is it done? What are the pros and cons? We are at, at the University of Pennsylvania, we have the education school that I'm in. We have some joint programs with, say, the Wharton School of Business. Sure. Look, they produce leaders. We produce educational leaders. Is there some cross-pollination? Obviously, running a business or running a nonprofit might be different than running a school. We talked about you know, the breadth of missions, but there might be some, there might be some wisdom there. I mean, to me, as a as instructor, one of the most Interesting things is when I get students in my graduate level classes from different schools at the university, from the Wharton School, from the nursing school, you know, from arts and sciences, et cetera, with different perspectives. And that's so interesting because then you'll get this rich debate in class, how to build the better school. Mm. Yes. So I do believe that education needs to look out to other nations and to other lines of work, to professions. You know, the differences between being a professor and being a school teacher, those vast differences. And, you know, what can we take away from that? Hmm. That's fascinating. Well, I have to sign off and I'm not going to do that without thanking you for all for all the time that you just spent with me. I'm going to cut the recording, and if you don't mind, maybe just staying on for a second for a little postmortem, uh, and I'll tell you how I'll, I'll share all the the tech with you once I edit it. So thank you again, Dr. Ingersoll, and I'll give you a more formal introduction at the beginning of this when I edit it. Thank you for your insight, for your wisdom, and I can't wait to read that uh, that book of yours and to give you a call back hopefully one day. Yeah, I've got a whole web page, too, with various articles on these different topics too. And research. I mean, everything from, you know, two page op-eds to 30 page data heavy research articles. So. Mm. Awesome. Well, I can't, I can't wait <clears throat> to continue to explore that. Thank you again. Okay. So should we sign off or did you want to do a little? I'm going to, I'm going to uh, stop the recording right now.